Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 454 for August 2nd, 2015. This week, I'm a fan of applications that are provided without cost, and I'll share a short list of some of my favorites. The best way to make a computer faster used to involve adding memory, but now maybe you should swap out your hard drive. In short circuits, Windows 10 launched this week. Overall, the upgrade process seems to be going well. Brian Krebs, though, questions a new Windows 10 feature, but it seems to me that his concerns are largely without merit. In spare parts, only on the website, an online service can help you understand auto financing, why more large companies are moving to open source applications for software development, and one of the big providers of high quality optical discs plans to shut down by the end of the year. Software comes in three basic flavors. Commercial applications that you pay for, sometimes following a free trial period. Shareware applications that you're asked to pay for if you continue using them. And freeware applications that are always free. Some of the free applications are open source, while others are proprietary, but still free. This week, we'll take a look at some of my favorites that come with no cost or obligation. Even if you're running Windows 10. I still suggest downloading and installing Qtr because it offers multi-pane file browsing and the ability to save complex sets of favorite locations. The Windows Explorer has never really been very good. Copying files from one directory to another is harder than it should be because Windows Explorer has only a single column of files. It is possible to open two instances of Explorer, but I consider that a weak workaround. Qtr has been around since 2006, and it comes with a cautionary message. Warning, the caution says, once Qtr, always Qtr. That's certainly been the case for me. Having tried this file browser once, I then installed it on every computer I had, and it is in my initial setup for every new computer. The favorites are particularly helpful. I have one that shows four directories that I often use together. Another favorite shows website development directories from the D drive on the left side and website production directories from the E drive on the right. You can choose the colors that Qtr uses for different kinds of files, and that's just the beginning of the customization options. Although Qtr is free, the developer does offer an option to make a donation. And you can download Qtr from CNET. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Or maybe you're looking for a way to speed up the boot process for your computer. Windows starts a lot of processes and services at boot time. Some of the applications you've installed might start additional processes that run in the tray or simply exist quietly in the background. Each of these takes a certain amount of time to start. And when Windows tries to start all of them simultaneously, the result can be a considerable amount of contention between the various processes. If that happens, the boot process can become uncomfortably slow. 
Faster processors and disk drives, along with more memory, mitigate the problem, but it is possible to improve the situation even more. Installing a solid-state disk drive, or SSD, changed the amount of time required for my primary computer to become ready for more than 10 minutes to less than 5. But that's kind of an expensive improvement. I had selected an SSD for other reasons. I'll tell you more about that later in the program. And finding that I could simply eliminate startup delayer was a plus. So you're wondering why, if I was happy about removing startup delayer, I'm now recommending it? Well, an older, slower office computer continued to need startup delayer until it was replaced by a newer 64-bit system with 32 gigabytes of RAM and a solid-state drive. If you're running anything but the very latest hardware, and if you depend on more than just a few applications to start when the computer starts, take a look at startup delayer. You can specify which programs start and when they start. Delay times can be set to a few seconds, several minutes, or even more than an hour if you want. You can download Startup Delayer from R2 Studios. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Writing doesn't necessarily call for using a word processor. In fact, many people make better progress if they work initially in an application that's more like a typewriter. A basic text editor does not allow the user to create bold italics or underlines. You can't modify color size or the font used for text. You can't create bulleted lists, text in columns, or add illustrations. When you're using a text editor, you can do just one thing. Write and edit words. That's one of the reasons that I start TechBiter Worldwide in a text editor most of the time. Although I generally use UltraEdit Studio for that task, that's because I purchased UltraEdit for other tasks. If all I needed was a basic text editor, I would use Notepad++. And Notepad++ is no longer just a basic text editor. Increasingly, it offers features that will be of interest to programmers. Regardless of what you might need a text editor for, it's a very good application to consider. The advantage of using a text editor when writing is that your attention can be focused entirely on the words. Because you can't deal with formatting, formatting isn't a distraction. And if you're a programmer, Notepad++ supports 27 programming languages, searches using regular expressions, and syntax highlighting and folding. It also has synchronized edits and views and a lot more. Notepad++ includes several plugins and a plugin manager so users can obtain other plugins or even create their own. You can download Notepad++ from the developer's website, and there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Compressed files are just about everywhere. And although Qtor and later versions of Windows Explorer can treat zip files much like a directory, it's still better to have a zip utility installed. And 7-Zip, I think, is the best. As the name implies, 7-Zip has its own proprietary 7-Z format, which offers tighter compression and better security than standard zip files. But because you can't count on most people to have 7-Zip, Sticking with the standard zip format is wise when you create zipped files. And they don't have to be zipped files. 7-Zip can handle any compression scheme, including DOCX and XLSX. Yes, the Microsoft Office files are really just zip archives. The utility can create and extract files from 7-Z, XE, BZIP2, GZIP, TARZIP, and WIM archives, and it can also be used to extract files from about a dozen other archive formats. 
Although compression ratios depend on the type of data being compressed, 7-zip compresses to 7-z format, which is about 30 to 70 percent better than zip format. And even if you stick with the standard zip format, 7-zip will provide slightly better compression, somewhere around 2 to 10 percent better. Download 7-zip from the developer's website. Yes, there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Ever see a message that says, cannot delete file, access is denied? Or maybe it's close cousin, file is in use by another process. All you want to do is delete a file that you no longer need, but you can't. You try closing every application, and you still can't delete the file. Finally, you reboot the computer. Then you can delete the file. Sometimes. In other cases, even rebooting won't release a locked file. And it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes a file lock remains even after an application has released the file. In other cases, there may be a legitimate need to delete a file even though it is still in use by an application. When Lock Hunter is running, you can usually delete stuck files without having to restart the computer. In cases where that's not possible, you can have Lock Hunter mark the file for deletion at boot time. Lock Hunter is one of the options you'll see in the context menu when you right-click a file. Select the Lock Hunter link and you'll see which program has locked the file. In the case I show on the TechBiter Worldwide website, it's Microsoft Word, and I'm being offered an option to delete, rename, move, or copy the file. Once you select an option, you specify whether you want to terminate the process that has locked the file, or just unlock the file. And Lock Hunter takes care of it. You just need to be sure that the file you want to delete really can be deleted without harming the system. In other words, if you don't know for sure what a file does, and you're not positive that deleting it is safe, just leave it alone. You'll find Lock Hunter on the developer's website. There is, of course, a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Add more memory. That used to be the standard answer when somebody asked how to make a computer faster. For 32-bit systems, that was a good answer up to 4 gigabytes of memory, because 32-bit systems can't use any more than 4 gigabytes. With 64-bit systems, you'll run out of money, or memory slots, or both, before you exceed the amount of memory the system can use. But today there are better options. Depending on what you do with the computer, how memory-hungry are the applications you use, and how many applications you have open concurrently, more memory might or might not help. A 64-bit system with 4 or 8 gigabytes of RAM is underpowered. It probably needs more. One with 32 or 64 gigabytes of memory probably doesn't need any more, unless the computer is being used for high-end video production. Assuming the system has a reasonable amount of RAM, the best way to speed it now is to add a solid-state hard drive. The first thing you'll notice about solid-state drives are their packaging. Disk drives that depend on spinning platters and tiny read-write heads that fly just microns above the surface of the disk are a lot more rugged than they used to be. But they are still shipped inside a padded box that's inside another box with additional packing materials. SSDs, on the other hand, are often just tossed into a padded shipping envelope. That's because the drive has no moving parts. And that's also what makes SSDs so fast. Because a solid-state drive is really just a lot of memory, it's more expensive than a standard drive, 
nothing moves, so effectively whatever sector the drive needs to find is directly under the read-write head all the time. There is no need to position the read-write heads. Instead, the controller software just refers to the location in memory where the needed data is located. That, of course, is also what makes it so rugged. A couple of things could probably kill an SSD. I imagine a large hammer would be effective, or maybe some rampaging static electricity. Otherwise, with no moving parts, there's nothing to wear out, and no heads will ever come into contact with the disk spinning at 7,500 RPM. These things are kind of expensive, but they're becoming a lot more affordable. When I replaced a notebook computer a couple of years ago, the model I selected had a one terabyte standard hard drive, no option for an SSD. In addition to the computer, I purchased a 500 gigabyte SSD and a USB enclosure for the two and a half inch drive that was in the computer. Many SSDs come with software needed to clone a drive, and the process is really pretty easy. In this case, I temporarily placed the new SSD in the USB enclosure. I attached it to the new notebook computer, started the disk cloning software, and imaged the internal drive onto the SSD. The next step involved opening the notebook's case, removing the standard drive, installing the SSD, closing the case, and turning the computer on. If that sounds easy, it was. The computer booted as expected. What to do with the standard drive then? Well, I installed it in the USB enclosure and then allowed it to sit on the desk for a week, just in case. Any electronic device can fail prematurely, but anything that survives for a week or so is likely to continue running for quite a while. So after a week, it seemed unlikely that I would need to reinstall the standard drive. I formatted it and now use it as a portable backup device. The computer boots faster, uses less power because there's no need to keep a spinning drive in motion, and it's less likely to be damaged by vibration or other physical shock. Solid-state drives in the 120 gigabyte range are now commonly available for about $50. You'll also find some drives in the 2 to 3 terabyte range, but expect to pay $800 to $1,000 for them, compared to, oh, $150 or so for a standard drive. Solid-state drives in the one terabyte range are now selling for three to four hundred dollars. That's still far higher than the eighty to one hundred twenty dollars you'd expect to pay for a three terabyte standard drive. But if speed and reliability are essential, SSDs are an excellent choice. For desktop systems or notebooks that accept more than a single hard drive, using an SSD as the boot device and standard drives for general storage is often the best possible solution. In short circuits, Windows 10 seems to be launching quietly. Although I heard from one person that his Windows 10 preview computer updated nearly a week before the official release date of Windows 10, the real process got underway as scheduled on Wednesday the 29th of July. A notebook at the office updated without a problem. I had decided to allow a notebook computer at home to update immediately, but planned to wait a few days for another notebook, one that's used by my wife, and for the main desktop system. That's because several time-sensitive events were scheduled and I didn't want any downtime. The notebook system updated Thursday morning, but four attempts on the desktop failed. 
I'll update the desktop probably sometime during the weekend. I expect the process to complete without any significant issues once I find out what the initial problem is. A few features are missing in the initial flight of Windows 10, but most people won't notice the shortcomings because many of them are Edge functions. Not like in Development Edge. These are features designed to work with Microsoft's new browser called Edge. And those features will arrive later in the year as Microsoft continues to move more toward agile development. The most significant shortcoming is a lack of support for add-ons. Other browsers, including Internet Explorer, can accept plugins and add-ons. A few other minor features are missing. For example, you can't pin a site to the taskbar from Edge right now, and dragging a file into an Edge window for upload doesn't yet work. OneDrive has been modified so that it will be less confusing. Windows 8.1 users sometimes mistook icons that indicated a file existed on OneDrive for files that existed on the local computer, and much to their dismay, they found out when the computer wasn't online, that a file they wanted to work with was inaccessible. The short-term fix changes synchronization so that all files in a particular directory will be available locally. Microsoft has plans to change the system again to provide more granular file handling. That feature is not yet ready and may not even be ready this year. And some questions about Windows 10 security. Brian Krabs wrote rather breathlessly this week about what he sees as a disaster waiting to happen. A new Windows 10 feature called Wi-Fi Sense, he says, by default, will allow your Outlook and Skype contacts to use your Wi-Fi network. It does this, he says, by sharing with those people an encrypted version of your Wi-Fi password. Panic button time. But does Krebs on security get this right? I believe that he does not. First, people in your Outlook and Skype contacts, Facebook too if you permit it, are people you work with, people you've done business with, friends or family. So you're limiting the threat level to include only people you know. But let's take that a step further. To gain access to your Wi-Fi network, a person needs to be within a hundred feet or so of your router. That leaves out the car salesman from the auto dealership across town, Uncle Harry in Harrisburg, Sammy in Seattle, and the vast majority of people you know. But does Krebs get even that part right? Again, he seems not to. To gain access to your Wi-Fi network, the device in question will need to have Wi-Fi Sense installed. And Microsoft has provided a comprehensive FAQ on its Windows phone site. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Here's one of the key points, and I quote Microsoft here. When you share Wi-Fi network access with Facebook friends, Outlook.com contacts, or Skype contacts, they'll be connected to the password-protected Wi-Fi networks that you choose to share. In other words, this is not by default. You have to choose to share the network. That's what Krebs got wrong. And continuing with the Microsoft FAQ, they'll then get internet access when they're in range of the networks, if they use Wi-Fi Sense. Likewise, you will be connected to Wi-Fi networks that they share for internet access too. Remember, Microsoft continues, 
you don't get to see Wi-Fi network passwords, and you both get Internet access only. They won't have access to other computers, devices, or files stored on your home network, and you won't have access to these things on their network. You choose if you want to be able to share Wi-Fi networks with contacts. When you're first setting up your phone, says Microsoft, you'll select or clear the Allow Me to Exchange Wi-Fi Network Access with My Contacts checkbox on the Wi-Fi Sense screen. You will start to get access to networks that your contacts have chosen to share with you, even if you don't share any networks with them. Check out the full FAQ on the Microsoft website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. A much more balanced report on Wi-Fi Sense comes from ZDNet, and there's a link to that article from the TechBiter Worldwide website. As much as I respect the work Krebs has done on security issues and the TechBiter Worldwide RSS feed does link to Krebs, I think he got this one about 100% wrong. And hopefully Spare Parts doesn't get anything wrong, only on the website, an online service that can help you understand auto financing, why more large companies are moving to open source applications for software development, and one of the big providers of high-quality optical discs plans to shut down by the end of this year. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.